0: There in 1 Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, let us now give our attention to the reading and to the hearing of God's holy and inspired word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, and undefiled, and fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold." that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye shall rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls." they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. If you call on the Father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as you know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass. Grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. And this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. begin to look at this first epistle of Peter. We see this, epit- this epistle along with Second Peter in that grouping of New Testament epistles known as Catholic or general epistles, which simply means that they were epistles written to the entirety of the church, not necessarily to just one city or a number of congregations, but to the wide church within Asia Minor, And so these uh, epistles have uh, general themes running through them. But here in 1 Peter, we uh, look at, first of all, this introduction this morning. We'll look at three things as we consider this chapter, and we'll try to move through this fairly quickly. First thing we see here is the introduction, uh, which Peter lays out for us in verses 1 through 2. And then secondly, we see the hope of salvation There, in verses 3 through 12, and then we see the call to holiness. And as we consider this introduction, this is a typical introduction that you would find in any um, epistle of the New Testament. But the author addresses himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He gives no elaboration on that. It's assumed that the church knew who he was. Now, First Peter is one of those few epistles that has come under great attack, even within the church, and even many uh, skeptics have denied the authority of the apostle Paul as its writer. But the early church was clear on who the author of this book was. It simply says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so we see that the books of the New Testament are stamped with that divine imprimatur. For those Latin students, imprimatur is that word that means let it be printed or impressed. And so that divine imprimatur is impressed upon the text, that there's an authority to all of these books, but there's certainly an authority to First Peter that we cannot escape. And so Peter shows the authenticity of this epistle. Peter was named Simon, the son of John, or the or the son of Jonah. Christ Jesus gave him that name in John chapter 1, verse 42, when his brother, entered, brother Andrew introduced him to Christ. You recall there in Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus was asking his apostles, who do you say that the Son of Man is? So many of those apostles begin to answer the common Uh, response of that day. Well, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Elijah. And Jesus looked directly at them and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it is at that point that Jesus says, thou art Peter, which means a stone or a rock in Aramaic. And it is on this rock that I will build my church. And so the church is built on his confession. The church is built on the confession of the apostle Peter, that he is the son of the living God. He is one of the 12 apostles giving, given this name and was the main leader in the early church. There is no biblical or historical evidence for the primacy of Peter or the notion of apostolic succession. The text tells us that he is an apostle, just like the other apostles. And so he is called as the other apostles were called by Jesus Christ. And you see this similar thing in Paul's letters where he addresses himself as one called of God. And so an apostle was called, was given certain uh, credentials, to affirm the authority of Christ in his ministry. And so Peter writes as an apostle, but but secondly in this introduction we see that he addresses those people who are called strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. To whom is it written, strangers scattered because of the dispersion? These are strangers scattered throughout all of Asia Minor. Modern-day Western Turkey was known as Anatolia or the Anatolian Plateau. And so this letter was written to those exiles living under persecution scattered throughout that known region of Asia Minor. And as they're scattered out of these regions... They were once strangers to God. They were once strangers to his covenant. But now, according to the election of God's foreknowledge, they're chosen in Christ. He addresses them as those strangers scattered who are elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. As with all of the New Testament epistles, They are written to the church. They're written to the saints of God. And as he describes this electing work of God through the foreknowledge of God the Father, we are reminded how God chooses, not on the basis of what man does, but purely according to his own purpose and will. John Calvin says this he reminds us whence that election flows by which we are separated for salvation that we may not perish his foreknowledge. That is the fountain and first cause. And so Calvin reminds us that this election is the fountain and first cause. He knew before creation whom he had elected for salvation. It is the decree and counsel of God on which our salvation is founded. It is not founded on the foreseen faith of men. It is not founded on the merits of men. It is founded solely on the grace of God as he calls his elect from the very creation of the world, as he set his love and affection on them. He calls them as his elect. That wonderful passage there in Romans chapter 9, which was the turning point in my own life. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will harden whom I will harden. And so Paul reminds us that it's not according to the will of man. It is according to the eternal purpose of God. But notice here in verse 2, we see the Trinitarian work of God. That golden, unbreakable chain. It is the Father who chooses the elect. It is the Son who redeems the elect. And it is the Spirit who applies that work of redemption. Just recently, I had somebody react to Calvinism as being a hellish doctrine. And I just simply stated, well, Calvinism is the only theological system that exalts the supremacy of God, the sovereignty of God, and humbles the pride and sinfulness of man. You won't find that in any other system. And yet here in that Trinitarian work of God, we see the Lord God bringing about that salvation. If God does not work that salvation in you, then you will never come to that place of repentance You will never come unto the Lord. And so he says that it is the elect of God to whom he writes, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Notice he says, unto obedience. That is what we're called to. We're not called to get fire insurance. We are not called to escape hell. We are called by God as his elect unto obedience through the sprinkling of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see thirdly in this introduction that apostolic greeting which is so common. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Grace and peace are multiplied unto you. There's a common practice in some churches and I have seen it firsthand and I have been predisposed towards this where they have what is called the passing of peace where brothers and sisters within the service greet one another with grace and peace. This is a common expression but it's not just some simple wish. It's not just an expression that is added to Christian liturgy but it is that common greeting that believers give to one another. Here, Peter desires for the elect aliens and strangers to increase in grace and peace. Thomas Watson says, Other mercies lie outside the pale and are dispersed in common to men. But grace is a special gift bestowed on them That are the favorites of heaven. Grace is never common. It's particular. It is only given to the elect. You are a favorite of heaven, child of God. If you are in Jesus Christ. And that is what drives the world crazy. That somehow God chooses whom he loves. That if God does not choose sinners out of their sin and misery, then no one will come. The only way to have peace, notice the order of words, grace unto you and peace. The only way to have peace is to have grace. Peace breeds grace. Again, Thomas Watson calls it peace. It is the root, and grace is the flower. Grace is the most beautiful and amazing thing. And the Spirit works grace in us and gives it to whomever He wills. And then as we move into the body of this epistle, we see, secondly, the Christian's hope. We see that there in verses 3 through 12. uh, Peter breaks forth in apostolic praise when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter writes this epistle to a church that was... Um, suffering for the cause of Christ. He writes this epistle to encourage suffering and persecuted saints in the time of persecution. So Peter writes this epistle to encourage them in their suffering, but he also writes this epistle to testify to them of the grace of God. Peter gives that purpose statement for writing this epistle there in chapter 5 and verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God, wherein he stands. Those believers in time of great affliction and persecution needed to understand that true grace of God in which they stand. And so Peter begins to lay out for us that living hope that we have in Christ. As is the fashion of the Apostle Paul, verses three through twelve our verses three through nine are. In the original language, one sentence. There's no break as we would understand it in the English language. But Peter writes, giving praise unto God, he breaks forth in praise because of the working of God's grace. And friends, if we cannot break forth in praise as we consider the grace of God, then we are not under grace. But we're under judgment. And it is the praise of God's grace that calls us forth to adoration and to worship. As he writes to these scattered Jews to comfort them. They have a greater inheritance than that earthly one. They were dispersed. Can you imagine being dispersed throughout all of the region? Living as a nomad going from place to place not having a city, not having a home, not having your roots established. That's the picture here. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ reminds them that they have a greater inheritance than an earthly one. I don't know how many times in my own life I've seen the death of a relative where there's always a question, and it's usually drama or conflict over inheritance, And yet, Peter says, we have a far greater inheritance than any earthly one. They once boasted in their birth from Abraham. These are Jews. But now they have a higher and nobler inheritance. We are begotten or born again. Conveys this image or likeness of the one who begets us or gives us life. The imagery, I think, applies well here, the imagery of that first Adam and that second Adam. It conveys the image into which we are begotten. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul the Apostle says, The first man is of the earth, the second man is the Lord of heaven. The first man imputes death and judgment to the race, but the second man imputes Life eternal. And so we see the image of God stamped in us. And that image of God is stamped in the believer in two ways. It's stamped in the fact that it conforms us to his will and his commands. And secondly, having God's glory in our hearts as our chief and highest end. Children, what is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Man by nature cannot conform to God. Man by nature cannot glorify Him. So we must be begotten to a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Peter encourages them to hope not in change, not to hope in circumstances, or in some earthly or carnal relief, but to rest, to be encouraged by that living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter says, without his resurrection, his bodily resurrection, we have no hope. What hope does one have who denies the bodily resurrection of Christ? What hope does one have if Christ be not raised? And Paul the Apostle says, you have not been raised either, and you are still in your sins. But in this glorious hope that is ours in Christ, he tells us in verses 4 through 5 that we have a secured inheritance. Sometimes an earthly inheritance can change oftentimes can leave one out of a will that was in the will, and all kinds of things can happen. But here Peter says this is a heavenly inheritance that is guaranteed for us because we are begotten of God. Unlike any earthly inheritance, this one is incorruptible and undefiled, reserved for you in heaven. It's not reserved for those who think that heaven awaits all men or those who think they have lived a good enough life, but all who are in Christ have promise of that guaranteed inheritance. This reservation will never be canceled or revoked. It is for those and only those who are kept by the power of God through faith in Christ. So there's no way you can ever lose what God keeps and preserves for you. Amen. The cause of our rejoicing is seen there in verses 6 and 7. We have that secured inheritance. We have the cause of rejoicing. Here in verse 6, we find a passage that has been the source of great misunderstanding and confusion. As I looked at this verse and number of commentators... They all list about three or four different things that this verse could mean. And I said, well, I find that very helpful. Um, But I went back to a sermon of Charles Spurgeon. And this was the most sweet thing that I've ever experienced in late times. Because Charles Spurgeon, as he's preaching on that verse, comes to the realization... Of this. He gives a testimony concerning this verse. He tells of a time when he was lying upon his couch and his spirits were sunken to a low place. I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for, but a great, very slight thing will move me to tears. And he says, then a friend came and told him of some poor old saint living nearby who was suffering with great pain from cancer. And he said, she is full of joy and rejoicing. And he says, I was so distressed by hearing that. I felt so ashamed of myself. He says, I thought, how can I not rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And he says in that moment, this text flashed before his mind. He says, oh yes, we can certainly say that we will experience trials and tribulations. But he says the real meaning of the text is this. He says that when we experience trials and tribulations if need be, if God so chooses, if in that trial and tribulation you were under the heaviness and the weight of that trial. That is what he's talking about. Oftentimes people emphasize the fact that we'll all experience trial and tribulation, but he's talking about experiencing the trial and tribulation that weighs heavy upon us when we are under what Spurgeon describes as a great sunken point in his life, a very low point. And he said, it's not that we are not to rejoice in our sufferings. And he says, there is certainly an absolute needs be that sometimes the Christian should not endure his sufferings with gallant joy. But he says according to this passage what we see here is that when we experience trials if we're under the weight and the affliction of that trial the the rejoicing doesn't come from the heaviness of that trial. The rejoicing comes from what lies ahead. The rejoicing comes from what awaits the believer. And as I thought about that I remember friend of mine, Dr. Michael Milton, who officiated our wedding, who told us in seminary, he says, when saints are under great heaviness of trial and tribulation, the last thing they need is platitudes and counsel. Sometimes they need what he calls the ministry of presence, just being there to encourage, to read scripture and to pray. But I think Spurgeon is right If need be, God brings us under trials which produce a heaviness and a weight upon us. We rejoice, not often in the trial. A believer may be under a great scourging from God. He might be under the darkest day of his soul. But, oh friends, morning comes. As the psalmist says, weeping endures for night, but joy comes in the morning. And so Peter writes to say, in the heaviness of those trials, whatever they may be, you've suffered the loss of life and family and friends and everything else under the weight of that. Look to that hope that you have in heaven. Look to that inheritance that awaits you. Don't look to life but to that which is to come. And then he reminds them that the trial of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, shall be found to the praise and glory of God. This great prince of preachers said he did not find in many of his commentaries any right meaning of this text. And I would agree But as many Christians may quote this, he is reminded of the fact that Christ Jesus was under the weight of heaviness. That Christ Jesus was under the weight of trials and tribulation. He faced the heaviness of thirst and all things that weighed upon him. And yet, he greatly rejoiced. A Christian can certainly rejoice in these things we are the elect of God through the work of the spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of blood it is in this that we rejoice not in the change of circumstances one may be on their bed of affliction and die one may be under great heavy tribulation and yet the rejoicing doesn't come from finding the right doctor or the right medication. It comes from the joy that we find that is yet to come. He speaks of that future joy in verses 8 and 9. Our faith is not yet perfected. Our salvation is not yet complete. But when Christ returns, we will be made perfect. We do not see him now, but we love him. And our joy will be full when we see him. Love him, saints, and your joy will be full. Christ is the object of your love and the source of your joy, not your circumstances, not the elimination of trials and tribulation. And as Johnny Erickson Tata once said, when she finds herself under the weight of the affliction of her weak and broken body, she thinks of heaven. She thinks of that joy that yet awaits her. But then he tells us of this salvation that is ours. That is commended to us by the prophets and the angels. The Old Testament saints inquired and searched diligently. The prophets foretold these things concerning the coming of Christ. There is no disconnection between the Old and New Testament. There's only one people. One covenant of grace from Genesis to Revelation. The Old Testament passages, Peter says, speak of Christ. Isaiah 40 Isaiah 42, Isaiah 53, Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, many others reveal Christ. And there in verse 12, he says that it is unto them, that is the prophets of the Old Testament, that this salvation was revealed. That they were the ones who ministered salvation to the saints. And so as we consider this passage here, we see that the, the continuity between the two covenants shows here that the prophets spoke of the things concerning Christ, but notice also the end of verse 12, that even the angels of God desire To look into this salvation. The angels desire to look into these things. Concerning the salvation of God's people. Which angels? Not all angels are good. Some were cast out of heaven. Cast down to the earth. There are two classes of angels. Holy and unholy. The elect and the non-elect angels. These angels minister unto God. And behold his presence. God has created two kinds of creatures. Angels and men. One kind the elect angels serve in heaven. The other men serve on earth. But both serve so that all of creation might be filled with the praise and glory of God. So that there is no place in his universe that is outside of his glory. What things do we desire to look into? It is the Lord Jesus Christ and His saving work. We miss much of this in modern teaching on the Lord Jesus Christ and His work of salvation. He is the most glorious object to be looked upon by men and angels. The popular notion that one dies and gets a pair of wings is a horrid and damnable doctrine. Angels were created as heralds of God's salvation. The grace that should come to the saints is the thing that they desire to see. And the angels desire to see God leading his church to eternal happiness and joy. The angels learn of Christ's glory through the church, Ephesians 3.10 been made known to the principalities and powers. They long to see the final glory of the saints. Who will come with Christ at his final advent? It is the angels. Christ is the one whom we should desire and look upon. We should study him to the point of finding sweetness in his grace. All of our study and meditation and work is not to a cold and dead exercise of religion but it is to a lively hope if Christ is the object of your love and affections then you will desire to serve him what a glorious salvation we have But Peter and quickly as he concludes here in verses 13 through 25 and I'm not going to go into the entirety of this I debated whether to do the whole chapter But here, in light of the salvation that is ours in Christ, they are called, saints are called, to responsibility of living holy and godly lives. Holiness is not an option for the Christian. Holiness is what we are called unto. And therefore, wherefore, Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace of God. That is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not fashion yourselves according to your old manner of life, but as you have been called to be holy, because He is holy. And then, verse 16, he quotes from Leviticus 19:2 that God's holiness is now expressed in the conformity of His people. To his commandments. He says, We have not been redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. And then he concludes there in verses 21 through the end of the passage, saying that we are to obey fervently from the heart because of our love. And our gratitude for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22: Seeing you have been purified in your souls, in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Why does Peter slip that in the text? It doesn't say anywhere else in the text. And yet, here is one aspect of that holiness that we are called to fashion ourselves unto. And we see that in how we love the brethren, not hypocritically, not with some uh, fake love, but he says that we are to love one another with a heart, a pure heart fervently. And there's a fervency in that love no matter what disagreements we may have no matter what might separate us outwardly we belong to the family of god because we have been born again we are in union with christ and therefore we are called to love one another fervently from the heart there is so much in this passage of first peter but as we consider this wonderful epistle and consider that all of us are strangers and aliens in a foreign land but in the midst of that foreign land we are called to serve christ to love him and to love one another let us sing to the glory of our god psalm 39b